If you're like me, you care about getting the most from your workouts, which means wearing the finest performance gear. You know, fabric that dries quickly and has superior moisture wicking properties. Fabric so soft and comfortable, you could, well, curl up and sleep in it. Introducing Sheeks, spelled S-H-E-E-X, the world's first performance bedding line. Sheeks began when two former elite athletes and coaches had an aha moment, combining everything we love about quality performance fabric with everything we love about comfortable, irresistible bedding. Unlike traditional sheets that trap heat, sheets are breathable, so you aren't constantly waking up to throw off covers or add a blanket. So you sleep deeper, longer, and better. And sheets bedding looks as good as it feels. Colors and styles that can match any decor at a price that will pleasantly surprise you. And right now, you can try sheets for 30 nights risk-free. Just go to sleepcoolnow.com. Use promo code 1212 and get $40 off any sheet set. That's sleepcoolnow.com, promo code 1212. Sleepcoolnow.com, 1212. This is the World According to Zig Podcast for September 22nd, 2019. My name is John Ziegler. I'm the host of this show where you can still get the truth about the news of the day from a conservative perspective in this world turned upside down. Our website is freespeechbroadcasting.com. That's freespeechbroadcasting.com. At freespeechbroadcasting.com, you can find my other podcast, which is the Individual One podcast, where you can... Get all the latest news, and there's always lots to talk about with regard to President Donald Trump. Uh, Here, though, we talk about uh, things that are of interest to me and my life that don't necessarily directly relate to Trump. And as is usually the case, there's a lot to discuss. A little bit later on, I am going to update you, as we do almost on a weekly basis, with regard to what's going on with the HBO Uh, fake documentary Leaving Neverland, which won an Emmy last week. And I want to talk today about the importance of dates or years when it comes to a narrative. And my belief that false allegations of sexual abuse, uh, to to false allegations of sexual abuse, dates are like kryptonite. And I, I first learned that in the Penn State Paterno-Jerry Sandusky case, but it's absolutely the case when it comes to leaving Neverland, and I want to talk about that a little bit later on. But first, in last week's episode, I went into great detail about how frustrating the uh, reaction and response to Malcolm Gladwell's book has been, largely because I had endured a series of extraordinarily disappointing uh, situations, some of which were technological. Uh, My podcast with uh, conservative CNN commentator Matt Lewis, uh, which was spectacular, ended up getting lost. Well, thankfully, this week, we were able to redo that. It was, uh, I think, just as good. Uh, And you can find that at Matt Lewis's website. Just Google Matt Lewis uh, podcasts. I also uh, tweeted that at my personal uh, Twitter handle, which is Zygmunt Freud. So, you know, we were able to get over that hurdle. Also, uh, the two interviews that I did about the Malcolm Gladwell book and specifically the fact that Malcolm Gladwell's Talking to Strangers uses my work on the Mike McQuarrie date episode, which is why I have dates in my mind and why I want to talk about that with regard to Leaving Neverland. But Malcolm Gladwell's book, one of the things that it does is it endorses my theory, and I think it's more than a theory, I think it's a fact, 
that the Mike McQuarrie episode date is still catastrophically wrong and that it totally destroys the entire narrative. Well, I did two interviews with State College Radio, the morning show there on WRSC with the host Jeff Byers, and there was a technical problem there with them getting it uploaded onto their website, and finally that has been rectified. And so if you go to framingpaterno.com, which is my very poorly named website to describe that where we have uh, created a warehouse for all of the real uh, information on uh, the Joe Paterno, Jerry Sandusky alleged uh, child sex abuse scandal, you can find there the links to two interviews, those two interviews that are really very solid and give you a, a pretty good synopsis of the date issue, how I came to the conclusion that the date is still wrong, what it means, as well as, and this is, I'm the only person that ever does this. No one in this case ever does this. I also take on what the opposition's rebuttal to this would likely be, although no one has the guts to, to rebut me because I'll destroy them in any sort of debate, so they would rather me just be left alone. But uh, all of that is in those two interviews from WRSC, uh, which you can find at framingpaterno.com. Uh, so that alleviated at least some of the frustration from the previous week. But in the bigger picture, uh, things only got more frustrating uh, this particular week. And there was one particular episode that really crystallized it and has had a dramatic impact on my psyche and my viewpoint with regard to where the entire Paterno-Sandusky Penn State story is and where it's going, at least to my involvement in it. You may recall, if you're a fan of this uh, podcast, that uh, I believe it was the end of last year, might have been the beginning of this year, but it was over the winter time. Uh, we did an interview with Jerry Sandusky's attorney, Al Lindsay. And Al Lindsay and I have had an exceedingly uh, tumultuous relationship, <laughs> to say the least. Uh, the interview uh, was kind of uh, a way of uh, creating a rapprochement. A, uh, it, was a, it was a fragile alliance. But if you listen to the interview, I mean, it was, you know, it was friendly, respectful, and uh, two people who have had disagreements who were trying to help each other because we're in an exceedingly impossible situation. I mean, you know, it is the the fourth quarter of a football game, and you're down. Uh, you know, I'll say 42 points. It, it, you know, US, UCLA somehow came back from 32 points down in the second half yesterday, late last night to beat Washington State. So, I'll say 42 points in the fourth quarter, and uh, you know, our our quarterback is injured, and uh, our defense stinks, and the referees are against us. I mean, basically, the bottom line is the the odds are incredibly stacked against our side. And so you need all the allies you're going to get. But let me give you some history between me and Al Lindsay, so you'll better understand what happened this week, and you'll better be able to interpret <laughs> how this whole case was able to uh, turn out the way that it has. Because I think this will, this will work on numerous levels. It'll give you a sense of the insanity of my life, as well as why it is that this injustice is going to be allowed to stand probably for all time. Al Lindsay uh, took over Jerry Sandusky's defense several years ago because he is an appeal lawyer, at least has done appeals, and, and this was an appeal case. He was not Jerry Sandusky's original criminal defense attorney. That was Joe Amendola, a guy who I originally defended for several years as 
being a guy who was simply just overwhelmed and in an impossible situation, my view on him has has devolved. I no longer believe that uh, Joe deserves to be defended, and largely because he has not fallen on the sword during Jerry Sandusky's appeal, which would have required him, especially someone who told me at one point that he was going to devote his life to vindicating Jerry Sandusky or something to that effect. Uh, but yet on the stand, he refused to fall on the sword and make a compelling case for ineffective counsel which there's an overwhelming case for ineffective counsel. And ineffective counsel is one of the easiest ways to get a new trial, uh, especially in this type of situation, because you don't have to uh, talk about, you know, child sex abuse victims not being credible and what have you. So I no longer have any sympathy for Joe Amendola, although he was in a very, very difficult position. Other appellate lawyers were just horrendous. And uh, at first, you know, I, I, I go into any new situation giving people the benefit of the doubt. Uh, you know, my basic rule is, you know, depending on whether I like you, my impression of you, the circumstances, I'll give you at least one or two strikes, maybe three strikes. It, you know, if I have no other choice, you might even get four strikes before I count you out. I presume you innocent until you prove yourself guilty. And, you know, I, I, I gave Al Lindsay the benefit of the doubt at first, but the first situation that he faced uh, went very poorly. Uh, this was several years ago when Matt Sandusky, Jerry Sandusky's, uh, one of his six adopted children, who ludicrously became a, uh, a victim right in the middle of the trial, not because he was ever actually abused, but because he saw the trial sitting next to Dottie Sandusky, Jerry Sandusky's wife, and realized this was the Salem witch trial and realized that Jerry Sandusky, his meal ticket was going down and he needed to jump ship fast. And so uh, th this scumbag actually had Dottie Sandusky babysit his kids so that he could go to the police and make a false report about having been abused by Jerry Sandusky. And if you know the Matt Sandusky story, he's so obviously lying. Uh, check out my YouTube video uh, that I did on Matt Sandusky. I think it's called the, the case that Matt Sandusky is obviously lying. Uh, and he did an interview with Oprah Winfrey, the um, the uh, Michael Jackson fans and Leaving Neverland critics will appreciate this. He did an interview with Oprah Winfrey, which I use in the YouTube video that I created, which is extraordinary. I mean, it's absolutely extraordinary that Matt Sandusky totally melted down in an Oprah Winfrey interview. I mean, it was absurd. It was just flat out ridiculous. Uh, if you look at his answer to her very simple question, how do we believe the worst answer of its type I've ever seen. And yet the media totally ignored it because it doesn't fit their narrative. Well, wait a minute, we're not going to call Matt Sandusky a liar because that, first of all, he's, we're, we've deemed him to be a sex abuse victim. He's the star of a documentary film. Does that sound familiar, uh, Michael Jackson fans? Uh, I, you know, the, the Happy Valley, he was the star of Happy Valley, a film that I was interviewed to direct. <laughs> uh, and I could not believe that they decided to put Matt Sandusky as their, their star, because Matt Sandusky is a complete and total obvious liar, much more so than even Wade Robson and James Safechuck. It's, it's just unbelievable. And his answer to Oprah was a joke. And so I thought this was one of those rare opportunities. Hey, let's make an issue of this. Let's make sure we get a statement out by the family and the five adopted children saying that they do not believe Matt and that people ought to take a look at his answer to Oprah and that this this is the thread that could uh, undo this whole, uh, to mix a metaphor, house of cards.
So, uh, unfortunately, I think it was the summertime, and Al Lindsay was on vacation. And I had tried to prepare everybody, but the people on this side of the story are all a bunch of freaking morons and, uh, and idiots and, and, and cowards, and, and they're too old and they're too incompetent, whatever. So I, I finally got a hold of Al Lindsay, and, I, and I'm, I'm emphatically saying this is a great opportunity. We've got to do something about this. And he's apparently on vacation and it's the middle of the afternoon, and Al Lindsay is clearly drunk. Okay, he's on vacation, uh, fine, whatever. But uh, I, am, I am desperately trying to get him to put out a statement. And it's clear he's not going to be able to get his act together. And he's not going to put out a statement. And that this very, very, very short window of opportunity is going to be lost. And that Matt Sandusky is going to be allowed to get away with this charade of an Oprah interview. And I start to criticize him. Like, I can't believe you're going to blow this. Uh, And he starts crying. He starts crying. And uh, he eventually says to me, I'm sorry I'm not the man that you'd hoped that I would be. And I'm like, oh, my God. You cannot be serious! This is not the guy who's going to get Jerry frickin' Sandusky out of prison on appeal. It's not going to happen. And he and I got into it on email on some other topic, and he basically told me, you know, go screw myself. Uh, I never want to deal with you again. And I'm like, whatever, dude. I don't care because uh, I already just determined you're not the guy that's going to get Jerry Sandusky out of prison because uh, you don't have it. You're an old guy, uh, and you've got a huge ego, and you're not very bright. That's a deadly combination. Old, not very bright, and a massive ego, and in way over your head. Uh, but anyway, over time, you know, time tends to heal all wounds, especially in situations where people have very few allies. And he and I slowly started to get back in touch, specifically in late 2016, when Alan Myers finally was forced to testify. Now, Alan Myers, who is named in Malcolm Gladwell's book, which is one of the bigger things that Malcolm Gladwell does, is to be the first mainstream news media outlet to go deeply into the story of Alan Myers and give his name, a name I was prevented from saying on the Today Show in 2013, which was maybe one of the biggest mistakes ever made in this entire case was telling the Today Show that I was going to use his name. And his name is so incredibly important because he was the boy in the shower. He was 13 years old at the time, uh, two and a half years away from winning a varsity letter on his high school football team. He was the boy in the shower that Mike McQuarrie allegedly saw that was the centerpiece of this entire scandal. And he had made it very clear over many years in many different actions, both publicly and privately, that not nothing had ever happened between him and Jerry Sandusky. Jerry Sandusky was the greatest thing that ever happened to him. He considered him to be a father figure. He invited him to his wedding, took a picture with him arm in arm in his Marine uniform as a 24-year-old sergeant in the Marine Corps who was married. He came forward after Jerry Sandusky's arrest, gave an incredible statement, which I waved on the Today Show, uh, saying that Mike McCurry is lying. This didn't happen. Came up with an alternative explanation. Uh, said that he had been interviewed by police, said the police were trying to get him to lie, told them that I will never lie about Jerry Sandusky, uh, and he left the interview. Uh, I mean, none of this was remotely consistent with a guy who was abused. And by the way, he never testified at trial. No one testified at trial as so-called victim number two, and the prosecution lied and claimed that that identity, the, the identity of that person was known only to God. Well, that's a lie. They knew who Alan Myers was. They just didn't like his story. And then Alan Myers, after... Jerry is convicted, feels safe to 
go ahead and, and file a claim and get uh, $6.9 million or something like that. Well, so Alan Myers in, in November of 2016 finally testifies. And I, you know, I know way more about Alan Myers than Al Lindsay does. And Al Lindsay is going to uh, question him in this appeal hearing. And I fly across the frickin' country from Los Angeles to central Pennsylvania, which is not an easy trip. It's a very difficult trip, not to mention expensive. But it's time-consuming and aggravating. And uh, no one really knows what Alan Myers is going to say. I mean, because he's never been on the public record saying that he was abused by Jerry Sandusky. And again, he was like Jerry Sandusky's son. Well, incredibly long story short, we get there, and I hear from the media that Myers is not going to make a statement after his testimony, but he's going to have a victim's rights advocate spokesperson speak to him. And I'm like, oh boy, here we go. This is going to be a complete fuckfest. This is going to be a disaster. And I go and find Al Lindsay, and I say, Al, uh, he's going to claim to be a victim, and you have got to destroy him. This is our only shot. It's a public uh, hearing. There's media here. This is the key to the whole case. This is the key to the whole Penn State case. You have got to make, at the very least, got to make his story seem ridiculous because it is absurd. It is absolutely absurd that all of a sudden, after years and years and years of incredibly close, incredibly positive interaction, I mean, Alan Myers coached youth football as Jerry's assistant, as a mid-teenager. What, what he's going to help Jerry cultivate other sex abuse victims? Come on, people. I mean, it, it, it's just flat out ridiculous. It, it's absurd. Uh, all of a sudden, though, millions of dollars come on the table via a lawyer that his mother used to work for as a secretary, a, a lawyer that we've done a a multi-year sting operation on who is a complete and total scam artist, a, a, an ambulance chaser. He, he uh, represented nine accusers in this case, made millions of dollars in this case. Anyway, so I, I, my hair's on fire. I'm like, ow, this is it. This is, this is the last chance we've got. You must destroy him. And he says, well, John, you know, uh, this is complicated uh, because all I really need to do is get him to admit that he was the boy in the shower and he's victim number two. And uh, from an appeal standpoint, that's all we need. I'm like, oh, Jesus Christ. Oh, my God. This is going to be horrendous because this guy does not get it. He doesn't have the, the brains. He doesn't have the balls. He doesn't understand the big picture. And this is emblematic of so many things that I have experienced in this case where people on the so-called right side of it, they don't understand that this is a unique case, that this is, case is totally different than any other. The normal rules do not apply. Gravity has no impact. The analogy I've continually used is everyone thinks this is a normal football game, since I've already used the football analogy once, that this is a, a game being played in a dome where you know the normal plays will work and the referees are, are being fair. This is not a normal football game. This is a game that's being played uh, outside in a hailstorm, and the defense you're playing against is the, the 1985 Chicago Bears, and the refs are totally on the take. So the normal plays aren't going to work. You've got to take huge, every opportunity you've got, you've got to take advantage of it, and you've got to go for the gusto. Otherwise, you're not going to get anywhere. 
Well, no one seems to want to understand that because these people, most of them have been successful in life. They think the system works. This is what happened to Penn State's president, Graham Spanier. You know, the system has always been good to him. He became president of Penn State, highly respected. He thinks the system's all going to work out fine. And I'm the one saying, you moron, you're going to get convicted. And I said in much more harsh terms than that. Uh, and, uh, and I was right. Uh, and, and every time people have wussed out, it has backfired spectacularly. So sure enough, Al Lindsay's uh, examination of Alan Myers was a total disaster. Uh, even still, it was obvious that Alan Myers was never abused because it, it, you just can't make that kind of stuff up. And if, you know, I think Alan Myers said something like 30 some times, I can't remember, including where he was during the trial of his best buddy, his, his father figure, most uh, famous trial uh, in, the, in the modern history of, of his. And uh, Al Myers doesn't even remember where he was. Well, he doesn't remember where he was because he was being held up in a cabin by his attorney because he didn't want him to testify because I think the attorney was convinced that Myers might tell the truth if he was forced to testify. And that would blow their multi-million dollar payday. So uh, Al Lindsay totally shit the bed in the testimony. And then it got even worse afterwards because I had agreed to come to Pennsylvania solely because Al Lindsay said, uh, we'll do a joint press conference together. I'll introduce you uh, as an expert on Alan Myers, and you can give your spiel in the media because clearly he was not uh, capable of doing this. And I had already done the previous year an extensive press conference at this very same location uh, that you can find at framingpaterno.com, which was off the charts, uh, fiery, and got a lot of attention. And so I'm my head's spinning. I'm like, how do we deal with this? You've just completely shit the bed. I didn't say this to him. Um, but then the guy hangs me out to dry. He doesn't do hardly any introduction at all. He ends his bullcrap press conference by uh, saying, and here's John Ziegler. He wants to say a few words. That was it. I'm like, oh, great. So now... Now I'm completely, uh, I, I've got no shot because the media wants nothing to do with me to begin with. Uh, I, the, Jerry's lawyer just essentially blew me off. Uh, and sure enough, the, the media is not paying attention at all. And, uh, and any, nothing that I said was going to matter one iota. So I was, and I, I, amazingly, I did not go off on Al Lindsay. Uh, at that time. I should have in retrospect. Uh, when uh, the press conference was over and it all died down, I think I said to him something like, you know, he, he said, John, it wasn't that bad. I said, Al, uh, it's over. I think I, that's what I said. I think, I think I said, Al, it's over. And I don't think he was smart enough to understand that because this was, this was the one last great opportunity. You've got the key witness in the whole case. You've got him under oath. Uh, and he's he's never done this before. You can destroy him with the facts, and uh, and Al Lindsay didn't do anything, and and so I somehow endured this. Uh, I still tried to help with the appeal. Al Lindsay at one point I don't remember exactly where in the timeline this happened, but uh, at one point he contacted me and said, John, I want to say something I don't usually say, which tells you a lot about his ego, but you were right about something that you told me very early on, which is that there's this great appeal issue with regard to the governor of the state of Pennsylvania, Tom Corbett, who was the attorney general who started this whole investigation way back in 2008-2009, and uh, him, as governor of the state, voting as a member of the Penn State Board of Trustees to fire Two of Jerry Sandusky's key witnesses, Joe Paterno and Graham Spanier, then president of Penn State. Uh, 
Not to mention essentially firing Tim Curley and Gary Schultz, two Penn State administrators who were key Jerry Sandusky witnesses because they totally obliterate Mike McQuarrie's entire story and narrative. But they essentially got fired and indicted by Tom Corbett's uh, uh, attorney general's office. So, uh, so here you have the ultimate state actor, the governor of the state, doing things which made it impossible, on purpose, impossible for Jerry Sineski to get a fair trial, especially one without any continuances, that occurs only a few months after this massive crap storm and, and media explosion over the firing of Joe Paterno. That's a tremendous appeal issue. That's an appeal issue, especially at the Supreme Court level in Pennsylvania, where they're all a bunch of liberals and they hate Corbett, especially now that Corbett's out of office, so he doesn't even have any power. That's your issue. Well, Lindsay told me I was right and then never did anything about it that I'm aware of. And then when I interviewed him over last winter, I, I, I confronted him about it, and he had no good explanation. That's the appeal issue. And he just gives me this song and dance. Yeah, well, you know, we got a lot of appeal issues. Oh, it's all bullshit. So this very fragile alliance has uh, continued uh, and, you know, has actually gotten somewhat beneficial. He he had a press conference earlier this year where he quoted me uh, and my work, and he did an interview with A.J. Perez, who we interviewed on last week's podcast about the date issue and about Alan Myers, the reporter for uh, USA Today, who ended up quitting his job the day that this story on Malcolm Gladwell's book was supposed to come out, which is just, uh, you know... Really? I mean, come on, people. You cannot be serious! I mean, it's, it's, it's as if there, if there was a God, it's like God is trying to drive me completely insane. Uh, and he just continues to fail to do so because I've now determined I'm unbreakable. Uh, um, but that's another story for another day. So, um, so, so you know, there's, there's a melting of the ice between me and Al Lindsay. Uh, and now this Malcolm Gladwell book is coming out. And I alerted Al Lindsay to this as soon as I got the book. As soon as I got the book and I realized there's two things in here that have, are absolutely imperative for uh, Jerry Zineski's defense team to shout from the highest mountaintop, one, that the McQuarrie date is still catastrophically wrong, and two, that a media outlet that is respected and an author that's respected has detailed the story of Alan Myers using his name in a way that makes anyone go, wait a minute, this doesn't sound like a sex abuse victim. And so now you blow up the McQuarrie episode with the date and the victim. That's a double whammy. That's a huge punch that's not just more than a, that's more than a punch that's a complete destruction of the central story of the entire scandal both from Sandusky's perspective and Penn State's perspective this is everything so i call al we have a good conversation i say al you got to have a press conference about this uh, I, I think you should give out copies of the book uh, and you've got to endorse the fact that Malcolm Gladwell has determined as i have that the date is wrong and he tells the Alan Meyer story. This is critical. He agrees. So the the book comes out, and I don't hear anything from Al, and I'm presuming, because of my past experience I just articulated, that he's going to screw this up. But I'm not going to say anything, because I always still hold out hope until people prove that there there is no hope. And so... Uh, he calls me uh, last week, and he says, John, uh, I want to do this press conference, 
And uh, what do you think about doing it on Thursday? I said, well, Thursday's bad for me. What about Monday the 23rd? And by the way, Monday the 23rd was the date that Jerry Sandusky's resentencing hearing was supposed to occur, but it got postponed. So the media is already expecting to do something on the 23rd. Why don't we do it on Monday? Uh, he says, all right, let me find out if I can do it on Monday. He contacts me, uh, leaves a message, says, uh, per your request, we're going to be doing this on Monday. And oh, by the way, in our conversations, and this was this was my first uh, sign that things were not going to go well, because Lindsay's a moron. Uh, but uh, when we talked about how the press conference would go, I said, well, I'll, I'll appear via a phone. We can put me on speakerphone and I'll answer any questions about Gladwell's book since I'm the source of the book. And he thought at first that I was just going to call in as like a member of the media and ask him about Malcolm Gladwell's book. I said, no, Al, that's not going to work. No, you have me on the speakerphone. Uh, you introduce me correctly this time. Uh, and I will uh, outline the, the, the details uh, explain why it's important, and I'll answer any questions. And he says, okay, that's fine. Yeah, we'll do that. So I'm like, okay, this at least has a chance of working, and we've scheduled it for now Monday. This is all going to work fine. I mean, he's been working on getting a, a key member of the state college media to attend. Uh, and uh, and uh, just to show you his total incompetence, he doesn't get any of the books. We had previously talked about him getting copies of the book to give to the moronic media members. He, of course, didn't do that. So I say, okay, well, then if you're not going to get the books, let me send you some screenshots of the key passages with the important parts highlighted. I'll email those to you. You can then create uh, you know, Xerox copies or whatever the hell Xerox. You know, you, you can you can print out the uh, the the screenshots and you can create little packages for these morons in the media. And he's like, okay, fine. So I send that to him and his uh, secretary. They said, yep, great, no problem. We're all good. So on Thursday, I'm playing in a golf tournament. And uh, it's, it's amazing for a guy who uh, supposedly you know, doesn't even have a full-time job how often when I'm out of the loop for even a few hours, something important happens. Uh, but I was playing in a tournament, so I couldn't check my cell phone. And I, I finished the tournament uh, round, and, of course, I'm on the West Coast. And being on the West Coast in this story is another debilitating uh, factor in all this because I'm three hours behind everybody in Pennsylvania. So by the time... I am off the golf course, and I get a message from Al Lindsay. It's already past business hours on the East Coast. And he leaves me this bizarre message that, John, uh, I think we're going to have to uh, uh, cancel. I don't know if he said cancel or postpone, but we're going to have to not do the press conference on Monday because of this quote-unquote shitstorm involving uh, Malcolm Gladwell and Jeffrey Epstein. And I don't want... uh, to have Jerry Sandusky attacked for uh, supporting someone who is connected to Epstein. Uh, If you want to talk about this, give me a call back on my cell phone. I'm like, what the flying fuck is he talking about? And you have to understand, Al Lindsay is somebody who cannot figure out how to work his text messaging, all right? He's old. I don't know how old he is, but he's well past retirement age. Uh, He can barely use email. I doubt he's been scouring Twitter to determine whether or not there's actually a shitstorm involving Malcolm Gladwell and some bizarre alleged connection to Jeffrey Epstein. 
So immediately, my gut is like, there's no possible way. I checked my Twitter feed. Because if there had been a story that had exploded into a shitstorm involving Malcolm Gladwell and Jeffrey Epstein, I can guarantee you that I would have been bombarded with messages, whether it's from the media or my supporters. I mean, I am the person most connected to Jerry Sandusky and Malcolm Gladwell in the world. Uh, and, and so if anybody is going to hear about this, it's me. Uh, it's, and nothing. I'm getting nothing. Zero. Not one message. Not one email. Nothing. Not a text. Not a Facebook message. Nobody has said anything. I'm searching for articles. There's nothing. I'm like, what the flying fuck is happening here? So I try to call Al Lindsay on his personal cell phone. He's not answering because he's who the hell knows. Maybe he's drunk. Maybe he's just a moron. Can't figure out how to pick up his phone. Um, and in the meantime, I'm trying to make sure I have all the facts. As coincidence would have it, as fate would have it, Malcolm Gladwell, as he has done several times, emails me on another matter. Uh, he asking me uh, about something involving the case. I think it might have come up in one of his interviews or there was a reporter asking about it. And I uh, answer the question and I say, by the way, Malcolm, you're not going to believe this. Um, as I'm explaining what an unmitigated disaster his book has been for me. He thinks the book's going great. By the way, it's the number one bestseller on the publisher's weekly nonfiction bestselling list in the country. Number one. So, I mean, this is a golden opportunity that will never happen again uh, for, for Jerry Zanesky's defense team. So he thinks that the, the book is going really well. People are reacting well to the Sandusky chapter. And I'm saying, well, look, uh, Malcolm, I'm, so, I'm glad for you that that's the way you look at this. But for me, this has been an unmitigated disaster uh, for lots of reasons, one of which was I asked Malcolm Gladwell for one thing. I mean, you may recall uh, I said you know, during our interview a couple weeks ago on this podcast, are you willing to help? And he said, yeah, I'm going to talk about it, and you know, you're going to have all sorts of opportunities to have your case be heard. Well, I asked uh, behind the scenes of one thing, because it was clear to me he was not going to put me on his podcast. I, I, I knew that he was friends with Bill Simmons, former ESPN guy. I think he still works for HBO, has a very popular pet podcast, it's out of Los Angeles, just near where I live, just outside of Los Angeles. Former ESPN sports guy. Uh, he's had interest in this case. He loves Malcolm Gladwell. They have at least some sort of a, a friendship. He was going to have Gladwell on his podcast. I said, Malcolm, can you at least pitch me to Bill Simmons to have me on his podcast? I'll come into studio. It'll be amazing. He said, sure, no problem. I'll do it. Well, Simmons, to the surprise of nobody, had no interest in that. Uh, and Gladwell had informed me that uh, Simmons had no interest in that. I'm sure mainly because he's a coward and doesn't want to get schooled and doesn't want to have to admit that they blew this whole da- goddamn thing. What's really amazing is Bill Simmons is the guy who started the whole 30 for 30 documentary series on ESPN. This would be the greatest 30 for 30 of all time in the history of ESPN as a documentary, except it would destroy ESPN's entire credibility. So they're not interested in that. The truth doesn't matter. So I'm explaining to him what a disaster uh, this book has been from my perspective. And I mentioned, by the way, you're not going to believe this, but we had a press conference scheduled for Monday, and it looks like it's going to get canceled because of your alleged quote-unquote connection to Jeffrey Epstein. 
And Gladwell's response is as follows. This is an actual email from Malcolm Gladwell in response to me telling him that Jerry Sandusky's moronic attorney appears to be canceling a press conference to highlight uh, incredible, important revelations in Malcolm Gladwell's new best-selling book because of this supposed shitstorm between uh, involving him being connected to Jeffrey Epstein. So this is Gladwell's email. My quote-unquote connection to Epstein? That is insane, capital letters. I've never met him. I was on his plane once, but only because those jackasses at the TED conference wouldn't buy me a ticket to their conference and told me to show up there instead. So I'm like, oh my God. So clearly this is totally bullshit. There is no shitstorm. How Al Lindsay got that into his little tiny brain, I have no idea. My guess is somebody else who he either respected or was beholden to told him this uh, because they saw some snippet. It might have even been from the, the Bill Simmons interview because I think Simmons did ask him about uh, this supposed connection to Jeffrey Epstein, and it was a non-story. Uh, again, I could not find one news article connecting in any way, shape, or form in a significant fashion Malcolm Gladwell to Jeffrey Epstein. But the way these things work is people make decisions based upon bad information. And then once they make a decision, they don't want to turn back on it because then they have to admit that they're a fucking moron. And so by the time I finally get a hold of Al Lindsay, it's Friday morning. And it's clear the decision that he implied was going to happen has already happened. And that they're going to cancel the uh, the uh, press conference for Monday. Only it's worse than that. And I, I, I have had this happen so many times. This is, I don't know how dumb people must think that I am. But whenever this occurs, and A.J. Perez did the same thing, although I don't think his intent was as bad as uh, Lindsay's, although maybe I'm wrong about that. You know, A.J. Perez... Uh, tried to claim, well, John, just because the USA Today article we've been working on for over a year isn't going to happen doesn't mean this isn't going to happen in the future. I said, bullshit. You don't understand how the way th- this works. You're not going to get another new job where you're suddenly going to do this story. You're certainly not in time to take advantage of the Malcolm Gladwell book. Uh, and, but this is the way people try to let you down easy. When, when they're going to fuck you, uh, they, o- they never want to admit that they're fucking you. Uh, and so they always pretend, well, no, this could still happen in the future. I mean, this is the oldest trick in the book. And I'm like, Al, uh, when would that, when would this happen? If you're not going to do it on Monday, when the hell would you do it? He says, I don't know. I said, well, you're, so you're not going to do it. See, let's be clear. You're not going to do it. And, uh, it, it was obvious to me that it's, possible that Jerry's new appellate lawyers for the federal appeal that's coming were the ones that facilitated this whole thing, which which might even be worse than Al Lindsay, because I at least had some hope that Al Lindsay uh, you know, would, would be uh, usurped by these new federal uh, appellate lawyers, and maybe they had a clue. Well, now it's obvious that neither of them have a clue, that whether it was Lindsay's decision or these new lawyers' decision, somebody's a fucking moron. Uh, I mean, of epic proportions. I mean, let's just be clear about how insane this is. This is, you're representing the most hated man in America. That's literally the name of Mark Pendergrass's book about Jerry Snusky. The most hated man in America with no chance, no chance of getting out of this. None. You, you, you should be going after every opportunity that, that falls in your lap. And you're worried about 
using Malcolm Gladwell as a source, a guy with a best-selling book, number one best-selling book, you're worried because you think that it might stain your client's reputation if somebody in the media references, well, what about Malcolm Gladwell having a non-connection to Jeffrey Epstein? What? You cannot be serious. I mean, it's beyond. I mean, it is beyond. It's just flat out ridiculous. I, I, I have gone through so much stupidity, so much cowardice, so much insanity over the last seven years, and this by far takes the cake. There's nothing close to this. You, I could not make this up. I could not make this up. I mean, and and so uh, I say to Al on the phone. Uh, so this isn't going to happen. And so let's review. So you, you blew the Matt Sandusky uh, interview. You blew the Alan T- Myers testimony. You've not made the best uh, argument on appeal, the one that you told me was the best argument on appeal, involving uh, Tom Corbett, the governor of the state, uh, firing two of Jerry's key witnesses. And now you're going to blow the Malcolm Gladwell book, despite me giving you every heads up and every opportunity. And, of course, him being an egomaniac, he doesn't say, uh, you know, John, I'm sorry, you're right, let's try to fix this, nothing like that, or, you know, or let's care about my client. No, 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 it's not about the client, it's not about the truth, it's not about trying to fix this, it's his damn ego, and of course, uh, he uh, says something disparaging to me and hangs up. That's what an unbelievable imbecile he is. I mean, that's all I've dealt with in this case is... Idiots! But this takes the cake. There's nothing worse than this. And, uh, but oddly, you know what, uh, I actually felt good about this, mainly because, you know, not good that the press conference is being canceled. Let's be clear why the press conference was important. It's not just an opportunity to get the truth out to some members of the media that might be somewhat open-minded, but here's the main thing. Much like the disaster with the USA Today article by A.J. Perez not coming out, the whole point of this is to provide cover for somebody out there who might have the balls and the brains to figure this out. And if USA Today had done it, that would have provided cover. If at least Jerry Sineski's attorney is endorsing the Malcolm Gladwell, John Ziegler date and pointing out that Alan Meyer's name is now in a major book telling his real story about why he's not a Jerry Sandusky victim and Mike McQuarrie is full of crap. If at least Jerry Sandusky's attorney is doing that, then it gives other members of the media a reason to follow suit. But if they don't do that, then it gives them the ultimate excuse to ignore it. Well, hell, even Jerry Sandusky's attorney isn't making a big deal about this. Why should I give a shit? That's the way this works. And Al Lindsay's too fucking stupid to understand this. And apparently the new appellate lawyers are too fucking stupid to understand this. And so, you know, to me, though, the good part was it provided clarity. It provided clarity for me that uh, this is just not worth it. That, uh, you know, I I said last week, I hate nearly everybody on the good side of this case. And it's getting worse on a daily basis. A daily basis. So to have clarity and to have a clean cut and to know I never have to deal with Al Lindsay ever again. And to know that I did everything I possibly could in this situation. And that uh, it's just not going to work. And that there's no fear of uh, somehow quitting too soon. Because you know what? If you just kept going, they finally would have gotten the ball over the goal line. No, these people are a bunch of fucking morons. Uh, and, uh, and, and, that, and that might actually be kind. 
So, so that kind of clarity actually made me feel good. Um, ironically enough, though, there's <laughs> it's just amazing the confluence of events in all this case. Simultaneously to this, there is, ironically enough, a podcast company that is interested in me creating this story as a extensive podcast series, which in a rational world makes total sense because true crime stories are the rage in uh, in podcasting. This is a very, very prominent case, and the, the real story of this is mind-blowing, mind-blowing and earth-shattering on so many different levels. In fact, the title they want to use is The Greatest Story Never Told. Well, I keep telling them, uh, you know what, I know this seems great on paper, but it's not going to work because the people who are on the right side of this don't have their act together, and everyone's a coward. No one will uh, come forward in the way that they should. They always pretend that they will, and then they back out, and they wimp out, and they never even admit they're wimping out, which drives me even further crazy, because then they leave me hanging. Oh, well, maybe I'll do it later. I, I can't do it right now. I'm sick. Uh, you know, whatever. There's all sorts of BS excuses. So now I'm in this very strange situation of basically trying to convince <laughs> this podcast company that wants to do this story as an ex- extensive podcast series that it's probably not a great idea. Uh, because it just won't work. It's it, it, it's it, it should work. It should be gangbusters. It should be award-winning. It should be earth-changing or world-changing, earth-shattering, but it's not going to be. So I don't even know what to do about that, although it, you know, I, I'm very close to uh, pulling the plug on that as well. I may just go through the process just to see what happens, because inevitably, inevitably something will happen to have them uh, pull the plug. But uh, it, it's just so... Uh, insane making the whole thing is insane making but when people ask me so how could this possibly have occurred you know this level of an injustice it's because nobody on the other side has any competence has any brains has any balls and they're all a bunch of complete idiots and cowards let's underline cowards especially old white men who think they've been successful in life, they totally lose their balls. I've seen this constantly. The loss of, of, and it's ironic enough because Jerry Sandusky himself has no testicular matter, which should be the number one fact that no one actually knows in this case, uh, which makes it impossible for him to have done most of what he was accused of and impossible that 36 guys could get paid over $100 million, and no one ever mentioned that. But that's a fact from his medical records way before the accusations ever even occurred publicly so um anyway the bottom line of this is uh you know i have had it psychologically uh i've had it from a practical standpoint i will continue to still um do some things on this case because there's a lot of stuff that i still have that i need to release just to tie up loose ends i'm still trying to figure out when the right time and the best way to do that is so i do want everything i still have an interest in putting everything on the record out there even though it's pointless it may even harm me in some ways, but I just don't care. So while it's not the last that I've, I'm going to talk about this for sure, and there's going to I'm sure things will happen in the news that will force me to talk about it. And again, I'm going to still release some of the evidence that I have. Uh, I'm I'm not going to barring uh, some magic 
uh, from this uh, podcast company, I'm not going to uh, uh, do anything actively to pursue this case. Uh, I'll release stuff I have. I'll comment on things that happen in the news. But I'm done at trying to help these people. They cannot help themselves. And uh, seven years is enough of that. Uh, so uh, it's sad. It's pathetic. It's tragic. Uh, but that's where we are, and that's why uh, Al Lindsay is not going to be the guy to get uh, Jerry Sandusky out of prison. Now, as far as uh, the update on leaving Neverland, I have said that dates are so incredibly important to these kind of cases. Dates and years are kryptonite to false stories of sexual abuse, and this is consistent. I've seen this in so many different stories. It's all over the Sandusky case. It's all over the Brett Kavanaugh case. Christine Ford has no idea where or when the this uh, accusation occurred. And to me, that ought to be just the basics. I mean, especially for a very old story, you, you got to at least tell me where and when something happened. And uh, and that's especially the case in a situation like Leaving Neverland, where you're dealing with Michael Jackson, one of the most famous men in the world. And therefore, uh, you know, he's traveling all over the place where he is, is almost recorded on a daily basis. There's some sort of record of it uh, almost every single day of his life. And so if you say something happened at a particular time or particular day, there's a good chance he's going to be able to prove he wasn't there. And they never, they never let Jerry Sandusky have that opportunity because there was almost no dates in this particular case. And as I said, the only key date was totally wrong, catastrophically wrong, the Mike McQuarrie episode. So, um, so in that, with that in mind, uh, it is, it's always fascinating to me how these suspect cases never give you a specific time and date and place. And with regard to dates, there was an interview that uh, Dan Reed, the director of this uh, phony film that won the Emmy for Outstanding uh, Documentary. Let me, let me, let's be clear, though, about how just absurd it is that HBO uh, won the Emmy and Dan Reed won the Emmy here. I, I mean, it's not just that the, the story is false and that the two stars, James Safechuck and Wade Robson, are lying sacks of crap or motherfuckers, as, as Dave Chappelle said. It's not just that. It's... The first article I ever wrote about Leaving Neverland was Michael Jackson could be guilty as hell and Leaving Neverland would still be incredibly unfair. You have a one-sided hit job for four hours about a dead man. How does that even qualify, qualify to be considered for a documentary award and yet to win it? Of course, they won it because HBO bought it. That's what it is. I mean, HBO sponsors the Emmys and, you know, this was a consolation prize. Hey, good job! You know this is good. Good job trying to uh, to promote the Me Too thing, and and I didn't even realize that James Safechuck actually went up on stage to help Dan Reed accept the award. I mean, like he's an actor, like he's an actor in a film. That's exactly what would happen if this was a fictional film and the director won. They would bring up one of the stars on stage, and that's what James Safechuck did last weekend. He came up on stage. Not just attended, he went up on stage and was and was congratulated by Dan Reed in his acceptance speech. By the way, Wade Robson was not there. Hmm, wonder why Wade Robson wasn't there. And Wade Robson has been uh, posting some weird stuff on his social media pages. So it is, it's possible that Wade Robson may be going through a nervous breakdown, but that might be a little premature. But anyway, so I want to get that out there right off the bat. But as far as this date thing... There was an interview with with Dan Reed 
that uh, I thought was post having won the Emmys when I first posted about this on Twitter. And then I looked into it and I was wrong. This is actually an interview that came out when the movie came out. But it's still uh, important from this perspective of, the, of when things occurred and the timeline. Let me read to you, Dan Reed, this is an interview, uh, some fairly minor uh, media outlet uh, that uh, covers uh, entertainment and, and film. And uh, Dan Reed says of his film and of, of the Michael Jackson fans who have done an amazing job deconstructing the allegations in this film. He says, quote, so I don't know where these people spend their lives, but they have an astonishing ability to ignore reality and common sense. <laughs> Boy, that's the pot calling the kettle black. They say that Wade is an admitted liar. That doesn't make any sense either, because when he when was he lying? They have to decide he was lying in court in 2005 at Jackson's trial, or is he lying now? Presumably, they mean he's lying now. He's the one admitting to lying in court. Presumably, what the Jackson fans are saying is that he told the truth in court, and that's why he's not a perjurer, right? Because what Wade said in court is that Michael never touched him. If that isn't true, then he's not a perjurer and not an admitted liar. He's the one who said that he lied. They should be saying that he's a man who told the truth in court. Now, this is absurd. It's just flat out ridiculous. Um, First of all... uh, (laughs) There's not just his 2005 court appearance. Dan Reed seems to be forgetting that that Wade Robinson is suing. And when he is sued, uh, the Jackson estate, he was put under oath in a deposition, videotapes of which have just most recently been released. And so Dan Reed wants to pretend that, uh, that anything that is contradictory to his narrative doesn't exist. And so he's a perjurer either way. There's, there is no way that he's not a perjurer because he either lied in the criminal trial in 2005 or he lied in his deposition numerous times during this court case. It's clear, logically, why you should trust his criminal court testimony because he had no incentive in 2005 or very little incentive in 2005 to lie in a criminal trial, especially if he had really been abused, and he has a massive incentive in the in the civil case against the estate because he's suing for millions and millions and millions of dollars. So, not to mention, there's no evidence supporting what he's lying about in the deposition. But this idea that somehow uh, Dan Reed can't understand, like he seems to be legitimately confused as to whether the Jackson people are saying, the Jackson fans and supporters are saying that uh, that uh, Robson is a liar or a perjurer because of 2005 when they're claiming he told the truth. I mean, this is this is not a difficult concept unless you're a moron. I, I mean, really, you you really have to be idiots, imbeciles to not understand what the point here is. The point here is that if you are to believe Wade Robson's current story, then he must be a horrendous perjurer at a criminal trial denying the accuser in that case, a fair trial. You have to believe that. And when you perjure yourself, and this is maybe from a big picture perspective, forget about Michael Jackson, this might be the most important part of of the Wade Robson story 
from its cultural significance, are we now to suggest that testimony under oath as an adult can just be completely disregarded years later after someone is dead when you have a massive financial incentive? That's absurd. I mean, it, it's beyond. It's just flat out ridiculous. It's almost indescribable, but it's almost as bizarre as that Dan Reed can't seem to understand this. So then he continues. He says, the astonishing thing is also when you go online on Twitter and stuff, which I try not to do too much. There's bullshit. By the way, he's blocked me on Twitter now. This guy is this guy who wants the truth out has blocked me. I've never I've criticized him harshly, but I've never you know made any kind of threat against him or used bad language with him. He just blocks me because he he's he's uh, tired of having to, to look at what I write. But of course, he doesn't spend much time there. <laughs> right, but he's blocked other people as well. But you shouldn't be blocking me. That's for damn sure. Unless of course you've got something to hide. So he continues, there's people who spend a great deal of time and care into creating videos exposing the lies of leaving Neverland, and pretty much everything they are saying have been contradicted by the documentary itself. Now, this is a fascinating statement. He says, all you need to do is watch the documentary. It's like Dan Reed thinks that his film is the only piece of evidence that there is, even if you want to call it evidence, it's almost like he is the director of a fictional film who is defending the continuity of his work. In other words, you know, you, you create a completely make, made up story, but there's some sort of hole in the plot uh, that people are saying, wait a minute, this doesn't make any sense because of X, Y, or Z. And the film director says, no, 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 look at my film. There's an explanation for that. That makes sense. In a fictional world where you are the only source of information because it's from your imagination. But that's not what a documentary is. A documentary has to deal with everything that's in the public domain. And Dan Reed wants to pretend that anything that's in the public domain that that doesn't jive with his documentary doesn't exist. So there he says, then he says, there's this thing around of, oh, how come... Stephanie Safechuck, this is Stephanie Safechuck, the mom of James Safechuck. How come Stephanie knew about the abuse? How come she was dancing when Michael Jackson died and when James told her about the abuse in 2013? All right, this is the dates problem. 2009, Michael Jackson dies. There's this horrible scene in the film where Stephanie Safechuck has horrendous acting, claiming that she danced when she apparently woke up from a nap in the middle of the afternoon in Los Angeles when Michael Jackson uh, was reported to be dead uh, on her television, and she started dancing. I mean, if you watch it, you realize this is ridiculous. It's absurd. Uh, She's acting, and it's horrendous acting. But that was 2009. Yet, uh, it's obvious that James told her about the abuse in 2013, if you see the entire factual record of this case. Well, Dan Reed says, well, that's not the case. James told his mother about the abuse in 2005, and that's clear in the film. He told her, Michael abused me. That's a quote he says. Michael abused me in 2005. If you watch the film with both eyes and ears open, that's incredibly obvious and plain. That's the bizarre thing. They don't even seem to watch the film. That's not true. In 2005, the story goes that James Safechuck told his mom, Michael is a bad man. And this was supposedly in some sort of way explaining why he wasn't going to testify at Michael Jackson's 2005 trial. 
Dan Reed, since he considers himself to be the be-all, end-all source on all this, which is absurd since he knows very little about the actual case, apparently, has at different times said it was 2009 when he told her about the abuse, which doesn't make any damn sense because you would only do that after he's dead, right? I get the idea. Hey, Mom, by the way, Michael Jackson's dead now. I can tell you he abused me all those years. Now, what happened? Because she's instantly dancing, supposedly, not really, uh, when she finds out he's dead. So, And there's no story of, oh, my God, James, Michael Jackson's dead. And, and somehow James says, oh, thank God I can finally tell you he abused me all those years. So the 2009 thing is absurd and ridiculous and, and not possible based upon his own film. The 2005 thing is not what the film says. Not at all what the film says. But here's the key. James Safechuck in his interviews to Oprah said that he himself didn't know he was abused until 2013. He says that in his lawsuit. He didn't know he was abused until 2013. So if anyone's proving someone to be a liar, Dan Reed is making his own co-star a liar. Because, so why is Safechuck lying to Oprah? Why is he lying in his lawsuit? Well, Dan Reed has to do this, this pretzel act, because they're caught. They're caught in a timeline that makes no damn sense. Here's what really happened. Here's what really happened. The 2013 year is because Safechuck is trying to get around the statute of limitations in his lawsuit. The 2005 thing is trying to cover their ass on a, uh, because they have the 2009 story that they know makes no sense. And they're using the fact that James Safechuck didn't testify at trial as a way of trying to claim that uh, uh, that somehow Stephanie Safechuck was a mind reader and knew that her son was abused way back in 2005 simply because he's, uh, he told her that Michael Jackson was a bad man. Oh, I'm sorry. That is absurd. No, there's no way that a mother... Uh, is going, especially one who was very close to the police department in Simi Valley, uh, is is going to suddenly just leave it at that. Oh, Michael was a bad man, huh? Okay, I'm not going to answer any questions about that. And so, therefore, you either fully know or you don't know anything. You can't have it both ways. It's either or. And so they want to be able to uh, have plausible deniability. That's what this is all about. While still allowing James Safechuck to claim for statute of limitations purposes that he himself had no idea he was abused until 2013. That's the reality of what happened here. This is a scam. It's an obvious scam. Uh, And uh, the idea that Dan Reed doesn't understand that this is proven by his own film and that there are other things outside the film that are more credible that contradict his narrative indicates to me that he's not very bright. I've, I, I am now convinced that he is both not very bright and may have a major issue with regard to uh, a, um, an obsession with pedophilia that is, uh, at the very least, unhealthy, if not worse than that. So uh, that's this week's uh, update on the never-ending saga of leaving Neverland. Uh, that'll also do it for this edition of the World According to Zig podcast. Once again, I urge you to check out uh, FramingPaterno.com for uh, any and all information about the uh, Sandusky case. And as always is the case, uh, please, I only ask two things of you. Make sure you share this via social media, Twitter, Facebook, uh, word of mouth, what have you. And number two, if you're one of those people who sleeps, and when you sleep, you use sheets, please pay attention to this important message. My name is John Ziegler. Our website is FreeSpeechBroadcasting.com coffee oh thanks how did you sleep like a baby i don't want to get out of bed ever 
These sheets are mm, incredibly soft. What did you say they're called again? Performance bedding by Sheiks. <laughs> performance bedding? <laughs> yeah, they're made from super high-tech performance fabric. They're incredibly breathable, so you're not waking up at night throwing covers off and then an hour later throwing them back on. Huh, no wonder I slept so good. Since I started using Sheiks, I sleep like a baby. No more sweaty nights for me. No? Well... <laughs> well, I like them because they're soft. They feel like, mmm, silk. Performance fabric, huh? Maybe we should... Oh, I don't know. Try them out again. <laughs> <laughs> Comfort and performance for better sleep. That's Sheiks. S-H-E-E-X. Sheiks. Try Sheiks for 30 nights risk-free. Go to sleepcoolnow.com. Use promo code 1212 and get $40 off any sheet set. That's sleepcoolnow.com, promo code 1212. Sleepcoolnow.com, 1212.